1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: A universal and perpetual peace, it is to be feared, is in the catalogue of events which will never exist in the imaginations of visionary philosophers, or in the breasts of benevolent enthusiasts. James Manderson So that they could have a stronger negotiating position in 1644, there was the genuine French need to make concrete gains in the military sphere, which throughout 1644 were generally frustrated by the Bavarian general, Franz von Mercy. However, France was not only fighting along the Rhine, where the French and Bavarian borders met. French arms had better luck in Flanders and Catalonia, as well as Lorraine, where it was now practically secure from the Habsburgs. But still, the French plenipotentiaries, remember we like to call them plenies, began to see Sweden as the major cause for the French military shortcomings. French statesmen at home blamed the Swedish war against Denmark as the reason for the French not getting the job done along the Rhine, and believed that only with a combined Franco-Swedish offensive could the small German princes be persuaded to abandon the emperor and send their own independent plenies to negotiate a war-ending peace, Which will simultaneously rupture the Habsburg imperial influence. Before the war turned so completely against the Danes, the French tried to send a rep overland to Denmark to negotiate an end to the war with its king, Christian IV. Interestingly though, Ferdinand III's agents managed to block him and stop him from reaching his goal. Hardly surprising when one considers the new lease of life Denmark granted Ferdinand. Mazarin considered sending a rep by sea, but there were concerns that amidst the naval war going on in the region, a single French vessel would become lost. In addition, before the Danish fleet were decisively defeated at Vermeern, Mazarin doubted he'd even be able to find the Danish king in the first place, let alone get him to listen. France had a strong bargaining chip though when it came to Sweden, its annual subsidy. If France threatened a withdrawal of this subsidy, or declared similar themed threats to Sweden to end its Danish war, then perhaps the Swedes would return to pick up the slack in the Holy Roman Empire. Mazarin was horrified at this heavy-handed approach, though. He reprimanded his statesmen and tried to get them to adapt the plan along a more considerate style, as proposed by Abel Servian, one of the French plenies present at Munster, which as we learned last time was one half of what we called the Two Cities for Convenience Sake the other one being Osnabrück, where the Swedes had their representative base. Servian's idea proposed that Mazarin tell Torstensen that the money was available for him in Hamburg, which would require a Swedish withdrawal from the peninsula. Or if that went too far, he could elect to only pay the money if Sweden agreed to use it to pay for its imperial, not Danish, campaigns. It would obviously have been problematic if France was seen to pay for Swedish attacks against Denmark. Even if that was not necessarily what France had sought to do. France didn't want its subsidy to simply be used to pay for the Danish war either, so strict parameters regarding how Sweden was allowed to use it were also issued. These terms were finalized in early July 1644 when Servian went to Osnabrück to talk to Johann Salvius, his counterpart as one of the Swedish plenies, the other being Johann Oxenstierna. Axel Xenstiern is also diplomatically active son. An agreement was reached there whereby France would pay part of the subsidy now, and the rest once Torstensen began his return to Germany. On the 17th of August, Servian wrote a letter of complaint though, on the grounds that Sweden hadn't done anything militarily of note against the Habsburgs, and seemed content to remain on the Jutland Peninsula. On the 3rd of September, the Swedish plenies wrote a panicked response from Osnabrück to Mazarin personally, informing the cardinal that Torstenson was on his way, in pursuit of the slowly decaying army of Gallus. French rudeness and ignorance of Swedish plans were magnified because of the French panic of being set upon by a feared Habsburg offensive. Indeed, though it would never come, Ferdinand electing to waste Gallus' forces on Torstenson instead, Imperials did attend a military conference at Passau, in February 1644, in which Maximilian urgently expressed the need to attack France as one, with Spanish help and reinforcement from Ferdinand. Maximilian planned to deliver the final blow across the Rhine, with his then-confident from victory at Tuttlingen, General Franz von Mercy. The army, as Max put it, must not simply operate to recover one or another fortress, but with God's help, can inflict a major disaster on the enemy in the field. Paso was the last joint Habsburg meeting on a military strategy. After this point, it was everyone for themselves, with Bavaria in particular looking increasingly like it was contemplating a break with the Habsburg family. These developments help explain much of what we've covered so far, of the campaigns along the Rhine on which so much was placed at stake while the simultaneous negotiations happening at Munster and Osnabrück kept the promise of peace close in everyone's minds. The vital factor, though, was that at the end of 1644, Sweden was no longer occupied with its Danish distractions. Torstenson could now focus his army against the Habsburgs alongside the French, just as Mazarin and the French generals had always wanted. In actual fact, though, that French military inconsistency that we've encountered before will crop up again here, and yet it almost doesn't matter because of the resounding victory Torstenson achieves at the Battle at Yankov in March 1645. Our resident podcast stalwart, Joffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, outlines what happened there. Torstenson led a fighting force of only 15,000 men, and the imperialists were able to field the same number. But the Swedes had an overwhelming advantage in artillery, sixty field guns against only twenty-six, after some preliminary skirmishing, the two sides met in a prolonged pitch battle at Yankov, southeast of Prague, on the sixth of March. The result was decisive. The imperialists lost their artillery, half their men, their field chancery, and even their commanders. Immediately, the Emperor and his family fled to Graz. End quote. Torstensson now looked poised to capture all of Bohemia, since the forces Ferdinand had scrounged up against him at Yankov consisted of those garrisoning Hungary and the final remnants of Gallus's force. With its destruction died the last chance the Hausbergs had in Germany to actually impose any kind of favourable peace. As was the case of the previous year, in 1645 negotiations had been ongoing in the two cities, and behind closed doors, while this battle occurred. In February 1645, Maximilian had sent a special agent, the Frenchman Verveau, to meet personally with Mazarin to discuss matters pertaining making a separate peace with the two Habsburg branches. The length of peace, the possibility of Ferdinand sending aid to Spain, and how Bavaria would impose such a peace on either side. But Mazarin would not allow Verveau into his confidence and saw him only once a week anyway for fear of offending the Swedes, whom Matsurin correctly saw as far more important than Bavarian false promises. Then the Battle of Yankov thoroughly shattered the imperial position, and Max hastened to send Vervaux new orders. Derek Croxton, in his book Peacemaking in Early Modern Europe, outlines their incredible nature, and how it illustrates just how far Max's position had fallen. Quote, in the meantime, Vervo received new orders from Maximilian that changed the character of his mission dramatically for on the sixth of March, the Imperial army, including a large Bavarian contingent, had been destroyed at the Battle of Yankov by Swedish forces under Torstenson. Reacting to the news, Maximilian hastily sent Vervo additional instructions. He hoped to use this defeat to his advantage by convincing Mazarin that Swedish power was growing too strong in the empire. Vervaux was still to propose a short-term general truce as a starting point. However, if this did not succeed, he was to go on to suggest a separate truce between Bavaria and France only. As a last resort, he was to request that France take Bavaria, together with the Swabian and Franconian circles, into its protection. It was a striking demonstration of Maximilian's fear of his worsening military situation, since at the same time that the Swedes were advancing rapidly towards Vienna, Turenne was pressing mercy towards the Danube from the west, after carefully leaking out the terms of the treaty, lest Maximilian do so first, Mazarin sent Vervo on his way. He politely told the French Bavarian Verveau that France couldn't act without Swedish approval and advised Vervo to bring up the matter in Munster if he ever found himself there. Mazarin has been accused of using these Bavarian talks to frighten the Habsburgs and drive a wedge between them and Bavaria, while Max of Bavaria has been accused of not being genuine with his requests for French aid. And it has been proposed that he instead sought to trick Mazarin into agreeing to the idea, whereupon he could then reveal it to the Swedes and drive a wedge between them. Whoever the wedge was for and wherever it was meant to be driven, it made Max more determined than ever to send Mercy against the French along the Rhine again, while it made Mazarin more determined to demand more from Bavaria in future negotiations. On the 7th of April, mazarin wrote to his plenies in Munster that, "...all this makes me conclude, it seems to me, that we and our allies will be masters of the negotiation, and that the others will be happy at any price to find in us some disposition for an accommodation." Mazarin's letters to his plenies is interesting because it demonstrates the link that he recognized between military success and diplomatic leverage. A fact acknowledged by historians, and dictated by common sense, but still cool to see alluded to by those who were there at the time. As Turenne marched parallel to the Rhine, with the battle against Mercy in mind, he grew stronger and stronger as the towns opened their gates to him, and the resources therein were put to his use. Maximilian of Bavaria was unable to understand this turn of events, and couldn't grasp why Mercy was weakening further at the same time, since Bavarian reinforcements in horse were sent to the Rhine just as Turin had to garrison his newly captured towns. With the spurning of his diplomat Verveau, Max decided that he had had enough of holding back. Mercy was to seek an engagement with Turin, and attempt to crush him once and for all. On the 30th of April, the Bavarian Council of War voted overwhelmingly in favour of attacking the French, and on the night of the 2nd of May, 1645, they infiltrated the French position at Mergentheim, across the Necker River, and due northeast of Philipsburg, and they inflicted a tough defeat on Turenne's hastily assembled force the next morning, destroying all his infantry and most of his cavalry. Turenne fled with his army's remnants up north into Hesse, while Mercy looked opposed to recapture Philipsburg. It was quite a turnaround, and awakened Mazarin to the realities professed by Servienne that stated France was too militarily weak in Germany, having focused his main attentions on Catalonia and Flanders. In a sense, Servienne was correct about this. France had focused mainly on Flanders and Catalonia, because both gave France the greatest opportunity for gain. As early as 1635, Franco-Dutch negotiations had revolved around plans to partition the entirety of the Netherlands between French and Dutch, and the French attacks in their most recent years had begun to establish a considerable French portfolio of former Spanish possessions such as Graveline in summer 1644 and Mardic, Cassel, Ypres and Menin thereafter. All of these towns were a bit beyond the Franco-Flanders border. France was thus no longer content to chip away at settlements that straddled the border. Instead, they had actively established a presence in the region. France would go from strength to strength in this region, and would even capture Dunkirk in 1646 to the immense jealousy of the Dutch. Catalonia was a seemingly easier front for France as well since it had managed to conquer the former french province since it had managed to conquer the former french province of roussillon from the spanish and thereafter team up with the catalans to inflict numerous defeats on spain not to mention holding on to barcelona until 1652 italy too possessed opportunities for france And with the Piedmontese civil war raging from 1639-42, to impressive sieges of Turin and the Franco-Spanish supporting of both sides, France was able to offset its Rhine troubles somewhat. Yet it was along the Rhine that the major events of consequence occurred, since they had the greater impact of negotiating in the two cities. That's why I focus less and less on outlying conflicts between France and Spain. Considering that, the effects that the war in Italy had in particular were treated more like a sideshow than the actual weighted campaigns occurring along the Rhine. The loss at Merck time was a blow to France. But it also gave Maximilian of Bavaria the opportunity to wear a smug expression on his face where Franco-Bavarian negotiations were concerned. Coming after news of the Swedish triumph at Yankov, though, it made France look militarily inferior. could not seem to shake the Bavarians. Mazarin was then informed of a troubling development that made him sit up and take notice, and also reminded him of the differences that lay at the heart of the Swedish and French states. Rumours had abounded in January 1645 that Sweden had either signed a treaty with, or were carrying on negotiations with, the English parliamentarians. Croxton notes that, This shocked Mazarin who not only felt French interests threatened, but who was concerned that Sweden had no right to make such alliances without notifying France first. The Swedish embassy to England also awakened him to the different interests that the two crowns had in Germany, especially in religious matters. There was nothing, he wrote in a royal memo of the 21st of January, that Her Majesty would not do to conserve a perfect and indissoluble union with the Swedish crown. But it is necessary to be aware that we might have a particular interest in Germany different from theirs, which it will be necessary to manage, in all cases, with great care. Not only was he speaking of the English embassy here, but also Sweden's jealousy over French relations with Bavaria. He rejected their concerns that France was trying to form a new alliance and separate Sweden from it, instead affirming that Catholics as well as Protestants were needed to limit the Emperor's authority. End quote. The troubles with Sweden continued for France, because the backbone of Swedish negotiations had been to wait until all the states were present at the negotiations in Munster and Osnabrück. In other words, Swedish plenies were to actively seek to delay the talks, where possible, until all German princes had representation there. As we saw from before, French statesmen supported this idea in principle but once the German princes only lamely responded to their two letters inviting all German princes to negotiate, the French will to see it through began to wilt. As far as Mazarin was concerned, those that responded were an adequate number to still undermine the Habsburg authority and give the appearance of France aiding the Empire's constitution. Yet Sweden would not compromise on this. It remained committed to inaction until all German states had reps in the two cities. It upheld this position so emphatically and so doggedly that Mazarin grew used to it as a sort of permanent stalling tactic. It was annoying, sure, but in the spring of 1645, when the French failed at Mergentheim, Mazarin was happy to have some spare time to make up the difference and hopefully achieve a stronger military position in the near future, rather than go to the bargaining table fresh off a loss. Mazarin was thus shocked to discover that Swedish plenies were suddenly urging the talks forward in the late spring. Whereas before they had been the champion of procrastinatory stalling. The reason for this change was the appeal of a deputation of German states, some of whom had not answered the previous circular letters sent by the French or arrived at the two cities to begin the negotiations in earnest. The reason for this desire to speed up talks and appeal to Sweden in person was the continuing desperation among German princes as the war continued, and it was believed that only by sending a deputation to Sweden which would not overtly offend the Emperor, since not all those who talked to Sweden here had actually taken negotiating positions at the two cities, could the talks be moved along. Sweden's plenies could thus now claim that they had, if not the attendance of all German reps, then at least their approval for the acceleration of the talks, and now Sweden put its full weight behind seeking peace. Mazarin was taken totally off guard, as were the two French plenies, Servian and Avo. Swedish reps proposed a second round of peace principles, key among them was a return to the status of 1618, a status Sweden claimed its German contingents believed they are fighting for, and a status that had recently been thrown out in Munster by the French Plenies in late 1644. Now Mazarin was concerned that the French Plenies would move against what he wanted and grant this Swedish request. Chief among his concerns was that it would offend Max of Bavaria, since by default a return to the status quo of 1618 would mean stripping him of his ill-gotten gains in the Palatinate and its electoral title and rights. The decisions moved too fast for Mazarin to stand in the way of though, and French Plenis gave their tacit approval to the return to the status quo as imagined by the Swedes. Servienne finally acknowledged that while it might offend Maximilian, the Bavarian ruler was, after all, our declared enemy and, whatever appearance he makes to the contrary, he is little goodwill for us. The French had been rattled by the loss at Mergentheim to the extent that Swedish demands with regards to religious issues often had to be compromised on. France did not want to strengthen the Empire's Protestant party, yet they had to dance a fine line so as to not alienate this party and send it squarely into the arms of Sweden. Sweden would manage to use its leverage to gain additional religious clauses, and because of French weakness owing to its recent loss, the Dutch had to concede, as Servienne explained in a letter to Mazarin. The accident that occurred recently, Mergentheim, forcing us to reunite ourselves more tightly with our old friends and to assure ourselves of their affection by new indulgences, does not permit us to dispute with them everything that we would have been able to dispute before. By the 11th of June, the two crowns had managed to overcome their issues, and had agreed on joint propositions to hand over to the other plenies at both Munster and Osnabrück. When the other plenies received this joint proposal, doubly unique in that it had been jointly approved by the two crowns, and because it contained numerous points to mull over, rather than the usual single point, they argued that France and Sweden needed to specify their territorial demands more definitively so that all sides could continue to effectively negotiate. Swedish demands revolved around Pomerania, but French desires were less certain, and it often seemed in French correspondence that not even the French Plenies were sure of what the government actually wanted. Did it want Alsace, Lorraine, Filsburg, Brysac, or just the latter two forts? If it wanted Alsace, how much did it want? Was it going to return Charles to rule over Lorraine as its Duke? Servien believed that the French Plenies should ask for greater terms than what they expected to get because the campaigning season was about to resume in the summer, and its success could not be guaranteed. Matzerin countered this with the advice that Alsace and the two key Rhine forts of Breisac and Filsberg were key, but added that the campaigning season would flesh out the French demands more effectively. Matzerin had a plan. He wished to raise Condé's army to a higher strength with Hessian and Swedish reinforcements, and then send it south to take Heilbronn. The campaign didn't pan out for Condé though, because Mercy followed him all the way with the remnants of his Bavarian army. At Heilbronn, Mercy and Condé stared across the river Necker at each other menacingly, but in the end the French and their allies moved a little bit further south, went across the river and continued east, with the goal of turning back around and then trapping Mercy against this river. However, Mercy moved too fast, so that by the end of July Condé decided to move towards Nordlingen instead. Which was just a little bit south. This ensured that Mercy followed, since Nordlingen was still associated with the triumphant imperial victory of 11 years before, and was thus too precious to simply allow Condé to take. Mercy arrived on the night of the 2nd of August 1645, and by the next morning both sides were ready for battle. Condé at last would have the opportunity to test his mettle against the infamous Bavarian. Yet, the Second Battle of Nordlingen, as it
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: It's often called, looked a lot like Sweden's Battle of Lützen in 1632. The Bavarian commander Mercy died, and this would ensure a crisis in leadership that would come to paralyze the Bavarian army and ensure the essential end of the Bavarian thorn in the French side. But it wasn't the kind of battle that could really stand out as a super triumph for Conde. In fact, had it not been for the mistake of the Bavarian cavalry commander raiding the French baggage train instead of pressing the attack when the French flank fell, the battle may well have been a Pyrrhic victory for Bavaria. As it stood though, it was, like Lützen, a Pyrrhic draw. And also like Lützen, the loss of the commander meant far more than anything that happened on the field. That said, though, The experience of the Bavarians shook many to desert, so that Max would find it more difficult after the event to field an army. This again could be due to the loss in name value his army suffered now that Mercy was dead, but it's worth looking at it from both sides. I would say it's a mixture of both, but as well as the less mentioned but still important fact that all sides were exhausted by this stage, and the nerves of Max and Matzerin were no doubt frayed. Yet, in an illustration, perhaps, of the way the wind was blowing, the French troops after the battle did take Nordlingen, while the Bavarians retreated homewards. In addition, Mazarin determined to further France's negotiating position, while Max became more amenable to French demands. Indeed, despite the background talks between France and Bavaria that sought to bring Max to terms without his sovereign, Mazarin did not try to buy time for the French plenies in Munster so that Bavaria would get a chance to bow out. After Sweden's Yankov victory, and France's following 2nd Nordlingen Bloodfest, there was now no longer any real imperial army protecting the Habsburg interest in the HRE, and this fact shook Max to his core, and made him more determined to act as an unofficial French mediator, and get Ferdinand to agree to the terms of the two crowns. But Mazarin had to be wary of how deep he let his Bavarian negotiations go, because he was aware that it was already a source of consternation among the Swedish plenies. Axel Oxenstierna had no love for Maximilian of Bavaria, having experienced his duplicity and his opportunism first-hand during Gustavus's early successes. The result of alienating the Swedes may have brought it closer to a relationship with Protestant German princes, and may have influenced Ax Ox to ask Torstensson to campaign in Germany until all of it was his. It was an extreme fear, but when Sweden accepted the peace proposals of John George, the Elector of Saxony, at Cochinbroda on the 6th of September, 1645, one can understand where he was coming from. The Saxon Elector had had more than enough. After having jumped ship following the 1635 Peace of Prague, Saxony and its elderly ruler had very little left. The peace signed between it and its tenacious rival Sweden suggested that a new era of good relations may now exist. But the true goal of Axox in signing the agreement was to keep the pressure on Ferdinand and remind him in the plainest terms that he had lost the support of his closest allies. It was also significant because John George, as the rep for German Protestants in the Holy Roman Empire, now had violated the 1635 Peace of Prague, and thus left the door open for other Protestants to follow suit, if they hadn't already. In order to squeeze the peace agreement out of Saxony, though, Swedish forces within the French army that had proved so effective during the Second Battle of Nordlingen had to leave and go north to enforce a campaign on Saxony that would take John George out of the war. But by late September 1645, the Swedes still hadn't returned to the French. Condé was ill and returned to Paris, which left the inconsistent Turenne alone to command the remnants of the French army. Ferdinand had acquiesced to Max's pleas for reinforcement, despite the danger Torstenson posed to him along the Danube, and, likely as much to Max's surprise as Turenne's, a large imperial contingent appeared on the horizon, while Turenne was besieging Heilbronn on the 3rd of October, 1645. There was great confusion as to where the Emperor could possibly have raised this force from. In fact, Ferdinand's reinforcements were the Habsburg Heartland's last line of defence and even though Torstensson was just across the Danube, he sent them towards the French, in the hope that they could destroy the French army there, and return to defend the homeland in time. The fact that Ferdinand was able to take this risk spoke volumes to Mazarin, who began to suspect that the Swedes were losing heart, and would soon sign a separate peace with Ferdinand, as they had with Saxony. As Croxton explains, the suspicion had been borne out of this peace with John George of Saxony, which France... Never saw coming. Quote, the first faux pas was the truce of Kotzenbroda, signed by the Saxony and Sweden without French knowledge on the 6th of September. Though an allied victory, the truce irritated Mazarin, since, by their alliance, neither Sweden nor France were supposed to sign a separate agreement without the consent of the other. The fact that France was scrupulously avoiding making a similar treaty with Bavaria only made matters worse. End quote. The second gripe France had with Sweden was its impressive build-up of forces in the centre of the empire. While Torstensen had been across the Danube not attacking Ferdinand, Mazarin was told, he had been hiring discharged Danish and Dutch soldiers. French plenies began to agree with this analysis, that Sweden was up to something, and planned to use its larger army for a nefarious purpose. Claude de Avo wrote to Mazarin that, To this extent, they judge it important to be strong in Germany at the time of the treaty, and we believe that they do it no less to make themselves considerable to their allies to have authority in the negotiations, and to make themselves feared by their enemies. Yet it was a tad hypocritical for Mazarin to be peeved at this, since France had tried to do the exact same thing. The idea that only with a large army would one have bargaining power was hardly lost on France, And of course, it was seen along the Rhine in particular, where French forces had to be of a significant size to get Maximilian to feel threatened enough in his position to negotiate. Perhaps it was more the fact that these same forces raised by Torstenson across the Danube were not used by him, and that this had enabled Ferdinand to risk sending these reinforcements instead against France, which completely upset French plans for the theatre. Croxton notes the rising tensions now present within the Allied camp. Complaints of Swedish military inactivity, which flowed steadily from Mazarin's pen in October, transformed into fears that Sweden had struck a secret deal with the Emperor and was deliberately leaving the French in the lurch. Rumors were current and at least credible. The court noted, for how else could the Emperor have sent such a large reinforcement at a time when his own estates were supposed to be threatened? In late October, the Court tended to reject the reports, and the plenipotentiaries concurred, noting that the siege of Brno had reduced the Swedes to such a point that they could not pursue an effective offensive anyway. End quote. The siege of Brno was the activity Torstenson had apparently chosen to undertake instead of returning to the leaguered terrain. Coming just after successfully forcing Saxony out of the war, you get the feeling Torstenson and the Swedes for that matter, were more interested in taking advantage of an opening than following the cooperative strategy shared with the French. However, as Ax Ox would recount with irritation, the French could not accuse the Swedes of acting behind French backs, since the non-secret of Franco-Bavarian negotiations was driving a wedge between the plenies of the two crowns and was probably viewed as the issue which would have theoretically provoked Sweden to act out in the first place. Regardless of Sweden's diplomatic angle, the fact was that Turenne was now dwarfed by this enemy's contingent's cavalry. Not to mention the fact that Nordlingen had taken a lot out of the French, to the extent that many were now walking wounded and had expected rest and recuperation after Nordlingen. So when Turenne began to orchestrate a retreat from Heilbronn all the way west across the Neckar River to Philipsburg, his troops likely groaned and picked themselves up again. They arrived at Philipsburg only three hours before the Imperials, and then had to watch helplessly as the superior Imperial force recaptured France's Rhine towns around Philipsburg and on the other side of the Rhine. Mazarin bitterly complained that Sweden had abandoned France at the critical hour. And had thus enabled the Habsburgs to pull out a face saving French pushback yet again. How was France meant to achieve a level of consistency when Swedish arms did not remain in the area long enough to support her? It was a fair question when one considers Mazarin had been abandoned before by the Swedes as they went off to Denmark in 1643. Torstenson's Saxon adventure may have caused the latter's elimination from the war but it also ensured that France would once again be unable to claim a permanent residence across the Rhine. Philipsburg, for now, remained the only French safe zone. This, in turn, gave the slippery Maximilian of Bavaria a chance to stall for time, and later abandoned completely the talks Mazarin had slowly been hoping to solidify with him. I think we could have all seen this coming. Reinvigorated, somehow, even at this late stage by the imperial resurgence, Max appeared to possess a newfound position of military strength. Yet even Max knew that appearances were deceptive. That had been Ferdinand's army, not Bavaria's, and Bavaria just couldn't take it anymore. He immediately used the opportunities that the victories gained to properly negotiate with Ferdinand and reveal in full his correspondence with France. This seems to have awoken Ferdinand to the dangers of the situation. Unable to support the war in either his own lands or that of Max's, Ferdinand was persuaded to send his chief negotiator, Trotmansdorf, a move which, when it was discovered by France and Spain, was thought, correctly, to be due to Bavarian prodding. Only Bavaria, by now the Emperor's closest and most critical ally in the region, they reasoned, could have motivated the Emperor to send his most important negotiator to Munster to hurry the talks along. Early on the 29th of August 1645, the Frankfurt assembly that had been designated to formulate imperial policy and effectively tell the emperor's reps what they were meant to say, closed for good. In addition, the deliberations in the two cities were both accorded the status of diets, which meant that their conclusions and decisions would be legally binding. On top of all this, The Habsburg family had recognized the right of all princes who would have had a seat on this Frankfurt assembly to send their own plenipotentiaries and represent themselves. German plenipotentiaries thus flooded into Osnabrück and Munster, and it really seemed as though, with the house now full, and the plenies of all states vested with appropriate powers, that the peace talks could finally make some progress. Though provincial politics ensured that the key power of the Dutch still hadn't arrived, Mazarin and Axox were both informed by Frederick Henry that Dutch plenies would arrive in the two cities by early January 1646. The importance of Bavaria to Ferdinand demonstrates how little he could now rely on Spain. There was very little left in Spanish tanks in 1645 and the Spanish were even more afraid that they would be left behind and wouldn't get to have peace before Ferdinand made his. They wanted desperately not to have to fight alone. Mazarin wanted desperately to have peace with Spain. Mazarin thus believed that with some tricky deception he could use the sense of urgency to persuade Spain to make peace within the year, which would leave the Emperor alone. Mazarin believed he had the leverage because, first, The Spanish did not want to fight without their Habsburg cousins, and second, despite the inconsistency present in the French plans for the HRE, its campaigns in Catalonia and Flanders were proving very successful. Mazarin had once been hesitant to conclude the war with Spain, because he believed France had not acquired all it set out to achieve. This epiphany of Mazarin's is examined by Croxton, quote, with everything going so well, Matzerin judged that France could get a peace on the same terms that she had been considering for a truce. Namely, to retain all her conquests, or at least the most considerable parts, and with solid right and title. A truce was easier to obtain, but a peace was preferable because it was more secure and less exposed to danger. Indeed, in order to gain the right and greater security that peace would give us in all the preservation of our conquests and to exit once and for all gloriously and advantageously from all our affairs, France would sacrifice something that it would be able to retain in a truce. Moreover, there was no need to make peace without Spain, as they had thought, because the military situation was so favourable that Spain, too, would be forced to accede to French demands. Indeed, Mazarin now expected to be able to conclude with Spain before the Emperor, a stark reversal of policy. End quote. Where the French used to be trying to frighten Spain by the threat of a separate peace with the Emperor, now they look to frighten the Emperor by the threat of a separate peace with Spain. We know that this didn't pan out because France and Spain remained at war until 1659. Part of the reason for this, as Mazarin was discovering, was that, despite their fear of being left alone against France, Spain just didn't seem willing to give up the ghost. The Mazarin considered Spain a defeat of power. Spain held on tenaciously, leading Mazarin to comment in August 1645. One can see with reason that on the same day France signs the peace, she will give the Spanish the greater part of their estates, which we could only easily have conquered in the continuation of the war. I do not see the motive of their blindness, and why they do not rush to this peace when it is the only means by which they can stop their entire ruin. Spain was on the offensive nowhere, and its own realms were in open rebellion. Meanwhile, Flanders was being strangled by a Franco-Dutch offensive, and even the Ottomans seemed to threaten a renewal of hostilities thanks to the latter's Mediterranean interests. Mazarin wanted to make peace with Bavaria for this reason, so that the army used in Germany could be sent against the Spanish in Flanders. French successes in Flanders and Catalonia, as well as the irredeemable situation in the Empire for Bavaria, now that Mercy was dead, suggested that Spain could be focused on diplomatically. To achieve this, Mazarin believed that he could attach his negotiations to the Dutch, since the ending of the dual offensive might seem more attractive to Spain than merely ending the French one. Yet Frederick Henry still did not want peace, and he managed to delay and so discord among the provincial plenies up until late 1644. Then, however, when the Dutch did arrive, fresh rumours arrived with them. What if Frederick Henry managed to make peace with Spain before France? If the Dutch left the war, it could give Spain the incentive to fight on harder and ask for stronger terms, as well as also placing the burden of the campaigning in Flanders solely on the French coffers. The new fear of Mazarin so that the Dutch would bow out of the war, awoke a sense of urgency to make peace with Spain before this could happen. Thus, in the negotiations, France did want to make peace. Mazarin wanted the war with Spain to end. However, as we have seen, if Mazarin made the fact that he wanted peace too obvious, then Spain may latch onto that and refuse to treat. It had already been a very frustrating experience for Mazarin, since Spain seemed to have all the awareness of its situation, as the computer player seems to do in Rome Total War. No matter how bad the situation got in Italy, Catalonia, Flanders or along the Rhine, where Spain had it effectively abandoned, Spain would not accede to a peace or even a truce pertaining concrete negotiations. In January 1646, when the Dutch plenies actually involved themselves in the negotiations, it became very obvious that the Dutch-Spanish problems were going to be far easier to solve than the Franco-Spanish. While Mazarin wanted his Dutch ally to continue to mount pressure against Spain alongside France, he must have been aware that by 1646 Dutch plenies had arrived in the two cities for the express purpose of making a peace that suited them. The Dutch Republic was not about to delay negotiations in the hope that Spain caved in a way that suited France. In addition, the Dutch were beginning to become concerned that France was acquiring too much of Flanders, and that in the future, the French would use this, or could use this, to threaten their security. This led them to actually work with France and ensure that France made peace with Spain at the same time as them, but we know that this would not pan out either. The Dutch Republic also had a strongly influential peace party which based itself out of Amsterdam and was founded on the idea that legitimate trade across the world, with Spain and Portugal as much as everyone else, would be far more lucrative than the gaining of new lands by conquest. The directors of the Delft Chamber of the East India Company issued the following statement. A merchant would do better honourably to increase his talent and send rich cargoes from Asia to the Netherlands instead of carrying out costly territorial conquests which are more suitable for crowned heads and mighty monarchs than the merchant's greedy of gain. Crowned heads such as France perhaps? It was a fact that both states were very differently run, and Mazarin often seems to have forgotten this when he expressed his frequent frustrations with the slow deliberation process in the Dutch Republic. Though Frederick Henry gave the impression that his rule was supreme, he'd only gotten this far by manipulating events to his favour, and by taking advantage of the crisis that the war proposed to the Dutch. In reality, each province had to pose its own policy, and whatever policy that was eventually agreed upon by the Republic was approved unanimously or not at all. This was represented by the fact that each individual province had its own plenipotentiary since nobody trusted the other provinces to negotiate fairly and on their behalf. It no doubt troubled Mazarin somewhat, that the moment they arrived in Munster and Osnabrück though, Dutch plenies largely spurned their French counterparts, and went instead straight for the Spanish plenipotentiaries. The French need to end the war was a need felt by other Christian powers in the Thirty Years' War for the same reason. In January 1645, the Ottoman Empire went to war with Venice over possession of Crete. The Sultan focused all his resources on this war, and this was the real reason why George Wicocchi of Transylvania, his vassal, had been persuaded to make peace the December before, and not Persia as I erroneously stated. The Ottoman moves reminded those at war with the other Christian states of the need to combat the Turks. In particular, the extremist religious factions present in each state that had so propagated the war over the diversions of Christianity, were more than eager to attempt to paper over the cracks in an attempt to unify military force against the Ottomans. It was almost as though, after so long fighting one another, Europeans had forgot about the one power down south that at one stage had threatened the sovereignty of them all. Certainly this was felt in France and Spain most heartily with Mazarin granting his approval to a proposal by his plenipotentiaries that if Spanish officials wished to cite fighting the heathens as a reason for backing out of their war with France, then the French would not pursue the issue. Despite this apparent concession though, Mazarin did not pursue the war any less completely because of it, and Spain failed either to use this clause or to make war against the Turks. The war did awaken the European powers to the presence of the Ottoman Empire. Who had been so quiet during the Thirty Years' War except for its approval for its vassals to get involved. The war was thus in the background while negotiations in the two cities were ongoing, and some statesmen argued that a broad truce should be negotiated, and that a Europe still in arms should turn its force against the Turks now. But Europe had not yet learned its lessons. The threat posed by the Turks was not yet realized enough to form the consensus that peace with the Christian brothers at any price was more important than material or political gain. Europe had fought for this political, material, and religious gain for the past three decades. It could not stop until it was correctly resolved. It would not be until the end of the century that the combined powers of Europe would in fact defeat the Turks once and for all in the siege of Vienna. That battle, and the subsequent acknowledgement that religious issues no longer formed state policy, and that the prime enemy to civilization and thus worthy of war were those outside of the European orbit, not within it, was a realization found only in the depths of misery that was the Thirty Years' War. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. This time, we have continued our examination of the crucial terms and ideas that controlled Habsburg and Franco-Swedish aims. We have examined how the military situation in Bavaria and the Palatinate swung negotiations seemingly back and forth between France and Bavaria. We have examined Torstensen's military supremacy, his peace with other princes, and Ferdinand's acknowledgement of his effective defeat by sending his highest official, Trottmannsdorf, to the two cities. By doing so, Ferdinand suggested that, finally, all parties were serious about the peace. My name is Zach and you have been listening. The Wind of Loissey Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.94, Making Westphalia, part two. Thanks.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.